0: Hello everyone and welcome to Saving Minds, the podcast that uncovers the best of what's new in the search for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease treatments. We are your co-hosts, I'm Shanti Skiffington.
1: And hello, I'm Dr. Elliot Goldstein.
0: Today our guest is Charles Fisher. He's a biophysicist, a machine learning researcher, and CEO of Unlearn AI. Uh, Charles' company is applying artificial intelligence to clinical trials to improve both their speed and the quality uh, of their outputs, which basically translates into faster access to very high quality treatments for patients. It's it's really fascinating stuff and we're eager to learn more. So welcome, Charles. Thank you for joining us.
2: Uh, Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, We're really excited to have you with us uh, because this whole concept of applying AI to clinical trials is fascinating. So just to kick off our conversation, why don't you tell us a little bit about Unlearned AI and the opportunities that you're focused on?
2: Of course, I think that artificial intelligence has become uh, something that many of us see in our daily lives. Now, we have self-driving cars that are, you know, actually being used now to translate—sorry, uh, to transport. Uh, you know, I think hundreds of thousands of people in, in certain cases. Um, your phone can translate between different languages uh, in real time. And there, there are actually a number of medical devices that use artificial intelligence that have been approved uh, by FDA. Uh, but there's still, I think, a gap between uh, the promise of AI in, in healthcare and, and what is reality today. So Unlearn AI at our core is really a technology company. And we develop new uh, methods based on machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence that are specifically designed for learning from clinical style data. So whether that be data collected in clinical trials or just electronic health records. And right now, we focus really on the bottleneck. So I kind of like to think about you know, looking for the hardest problem in some way and then trying to solve that problem. And so when we look at drug development, there is this really tremendous bottleneck in getting drugs through inhuman clinical trials and then subsequently approved. That it costs, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in some cases, uh, takes, you know, 10 years and, and has a very high failure rate. And so we think about what can we do, what kinds of machine learning approaches can we develop and apply it to that particular problem that will enable us to cut the time it takes to get a drug to patients in half. Um, and so that's fundamentally uh, the set of problems uh, that we are,
1: are focused on solving. Okay. Okay. Um- Charles, I read in your 2019 scientific reports a really, really interesting uh, work you're doing uh, around machine learning for comprehensive forecasting uh, in the uh, clinical trial setting. Um, You you mentioned a very exciting concept called the digital twin and how it can help speed and improve quality of clinical trials as well as eventually benefit patients. Um, Could you tell us more about digital twinning and what is that? How does it work? The term... Uh, digital
2: twin is not actually one that we invented. Uh, we are borrowing it from engineering. And so digital twins are used in engineering applications uh, quite frequently. Let's imagine that you have an engineer and they're building an engine. Um, and they'd like to be able to test how that engine would respond under different type of, types of you know, circumstances. Maybe if you put it under high stress or high RPMs or something like that. But if you actually run those experiments on a real engine, you you run the risk of damaging it. So rather than trying to do that in the real engine, uh, the engineers will build a computer model of that engine where they'll have sensor data coming from a a real device and it will feed into the computer model and allow them to simulate those kinds of experiments. And then they don't run the risk of of damaging the, the real device. And I think that's a really interesting concept if we could think about a way to apply that same kind of idea to, to biology, right? And to say, can we simulate people uh, in a way that we can do experiments that we normally wouldn't want to do on, on real people uh, and use a computer to predict what would happen? The difference, of course, is that in, in engineering, we have a blueprint And we know exactly how the device is put together and how it works. And we can write down a computer model uh, very easily. But in biology, we have basically no idea how anything works. And so we we can't write down uh, a computer model that's really mechanistic, that's building up from first principles. So rather than doing that, we use machine learning. uh, And we apply methods that learn from large uh, compendia of historical data. So that when a sort of patient enrolls into a clinical trial, we can take their data at the beginning of the trial, just like you normally would, and feed that into this uh, computer model. And then that computer model can spit out predictions. Um, It can say what would happen to that particular patient if they were to receive a placebo in that clinical trial. And that provides uh, a matched control for that particular patient. So you can imagine running a clinical trial where instead of just comparing a treatment group to a control group, you actually have a control group for each individual patient that's in the study. And so then we can take a real patient and you can give them uh, the treatment and you can observe how they respond to it. And then we can compare that to this prediction, this simulation of what would have happened if they had received the placebo. And then the difference between those two, the observed outcome and the predicted placebo outcome, uh, tell us how effective that treatment was for that particular patient. And so that's this this idea of how we can use uh, these computer simulations to essentially augment Uh, uh, randomized controlled trials in a way that we can run them with many fewer patients uh, required to uh, receive a placebo in that trial so that you can run trials much faster, but also really in a more patient-centric way.
1: Uh So one interesting application, of course, based on what you said, would be in circumstances of rare disease where there can be very few patients available for for, for testing, if you like. So uh, developing a cohort of patients, uh, call them virtual or digital patient or patient profiles, could be very helpful. Of course, I would assume that the model or the machine learning approach is only as good as the data that goes in, right? What's the biggest challenge? Um, Well, I actually wanted to ask you two questions. One, what's the biggest challenge uh, with the digital twin approach? And where are the early success stories? Are there some clinical trials or settings where already uh, this approach has really proven its worth? I think that there are two challenges
2: when we think about applying Uh, digital twins within the context of of clinical trials. Um, The first one is that any model that you use to predict or or simulate, uh, say, potential outcomes like this, um, and there's different approaches uh, that are used in some other areas to using external control arms in clinical trials, Um, they can only account for uh, variables that have been measured from the patients. So if there is something that has never been measured about the patients but is nonetheless predictive of the outcome uh, in some way. So let's imagine that you have a clinical trial that's only measuring you know, biological uh, variables and we don't have information about socioeconomic status of, of the patients, but that might very well be correlated uh, to, to their outcomes. Well, then there's no real way that you can account for that with any, with any kind of model or any kind of external control arm. So the approaches that we use even down the road to say, okay, well, here's, we now have these digital twins for all of these patients in the, in the trial, or we have the ability to create them, but how can we design a trial in a way that will include these digital twins? that will be more efficient, that will provide this individualized information about response, but that still retains the operating characteristics of traditional randomized controlled trials that we would like. So we'd like to be able to control type 1 error rates and make sure that we're not, you know, biasing the outcomes of the trial. So there's also, in addition to the machine learning, there's a lot of things at the end in terms of trial design and and statistical analysis that we have to do to make sure we, we preserve that. And your comment about the data as well is, is another uh, is another big challenge, you know, compared to other areas of machine learning. I really think that, that this is the fundamental reason why machine learning is hard and different in biology is that we just don't have large, high quality data sets compared to what other other people have, hmm. you know. If you're yeah. Facebook, you can just download a billion images off of Facebook and then you can do whatever you want with them. And we just don't have that that ability. So you know for us, we focus primarily on on clinical trial data, some some registry data. And then a big part of the challenge in, in really getting those data is in data cleaning. You know, we spend a lot of time, most of our time. Uh, taking data from different sources, putting it together, and then doing a, 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 a tremendous effort at quality control to try <laughs> but, to get it in the shape we can use it.
1: Un, un, understood. You, you also made a very interesting point um, a little earlier on in, in, in this last discussion, and that is, um, and it kind of takes me back to, I'll call it the old days, you know, I've been in drug development since 1980, so don't calculate how old I am. That's really easy math. But, but seriously, you um, in the early 80s and 90s um, reimbursement uh, um, cost effectiveness if you like of, of of drugs and how to measure that in clinical trials became very important And because that sort of output was important it helped us redesign, What questions you ask, what data you go after in a clinical trial, like socioeconomic status, like educational background, or whatever may seem important. So let's skip ahead to Alzheimer's disease, which obviously is a key focus of our company and something you're very interested in. We've talked about Alzheimer's quite a lot on many of our podcasts, so it's great to have your view on this. But what are the specific opportunities that artificial intelligence, machine learning, may offer to patients with Alzheimer's disease let's dig a little deeper into Alzheimer's
2: I think that there are uh, a few possible ways that that AI and machine learning could be used to to benefit patients with Alzheimer's um, some are things that we work on and some are things that that we don't work on right um, so you know for, for our particular use case we are looking at you know clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease have really not had a very good record, right? It's been, uh, I think, 15 years since there's been a a major approval uh, in in Alzheimer's disease. And trials are now quite large, quite expensive, take a long time. And anything that we can do to uh, speed up those trials and to try to get new medicines to, to patients with Alzheimer's who really, you know, we need new medicines getting to those patients, I I think it's something that that we should all focus on. And I think that our approach has a a real uh, shot at, you know, speeding up drug development in Alzheimer's, you know, by a factor of two. And that would enable you know, many more shots on goal. It would enable getting drugs to patients uh, quite a bit faster. But outside of clinical trials, there's probably a lot that you could do as well in terms of, you know, if you're going earlier in in the drug discovery phase, there's a large number of companies now uh, who are using artificial intelligence in different ways to try to identify better targets or try to come up with with molecules, small molecules that have better properties, maybe antibody design uh, for, to have better properties, and then downstream as well. Even if you're thinking about you know patient care, um, monitoring patients, uh, trying to uh, recommend treatment options, uh, things things like that.
1: Uh, what, what, one question I'd like to ask you in this respect, um, uh, as as I'm sure you know, uh, over the last several years. There's been really an explosion in the area of biomarkers, so objective elements, things we can measure in the blood like NFL, neurofilament light, phosphorylated P-tau, markers of Alzheimer's disease and disease progression, if you like. That are very that are objective that can be measured now in the blood, not just you know more esoterically in the uh, spinal fluid, um, and and these are great advances because they they tend to they seem to me anyway as, uh, as 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 a doc they seem to me um, very objective easy to reproduce and measure, uh, and a great complement and even uh, an advance over what I'll call the clinical rating scales, which work well across a broad population, but in an individual patient are very susceptible to context. Uh, the night before, what happened? Are they, are they depressed? Has there been an issue in the family? Um, all, all those sorts of things. Um, has this uh, revolution, if you like, at least we see it that way in biomarkers, how is that impacting the kind of data you'll be using uh, to help uh, predict outcomes and achieve some of the outcomes you've you've just mentioned. Well, for us
2: as a data-driven machine learning company, so it's really just. Uh you know, the kinds of data, the kinds of methods that are, that are being used and applied to patients. As long as we have those data, we can put them into the models we use. So this can be clinical style. It could be, you know, like you said, cognitive tests. It could be blood tests. It could be CSF. It could be imaging. Uh, it could be doctor's notes. Uh, really any information that we have about the patients because we take this sort of machine, deep learning kind of machine learning approach where the data goes in and predictions come out. Uh, really, any kinds of those data could be used. I think that for us, when we are looking at these kinds of biomarkers, um, I, I think that there is some hope uh, on on our on our front. And I've also had some of these discussions, like with with some people at FDA, for example. And there's some hope on their front too that there's some consolidation uh, scientifically into which biomarkers become, become important. Because as of right now, there are are many, many potential biomarkers for, for AD that people have proposed. And we'd like to see there be some, some standards that are developing where we say, these are the, you know, five or 10 biomarkers that are really important. Uh, and we're going to focus on those. Um, and it really, until that's done, it's, it's difficult to build a big enough data set because, you know, individual studies typically only have a couple hundred people in them. But for, you know, really statistical analysis and, and machine learning, you want to have bigger studies than that. Uh, we'd like to be able, so a lot of what we do is we take, you know, there's a 200 person study there, there's a 500 person study there, there's a thousand person study. we put all these studies together so that we can get a big data set. And so we'd like to see some consolidation uh, around, around those biomarkers. Um, the, the other thing in terms of biomarkers that I, I do I, I mean their uh, value as diagnostics can be very, very, very important. Um, and I definitely see that. but at the same time we do want to, you know, I think keep in mind um, you know the patient outcomes that we are trying to move in the end and and, and not get too focused necessarily on, on moving biomarkers, right? So you can imagine what if we had said that, you know, the only thing that you need to move in a trial is is going to be A-beta in the brain, right? Well, there's been lots of drugs that have been able to clear A-beta out of the brain, but they have not necessarily uh, made an impact that we've been able to measure uh, on, on patient outcomes. And is that because those drugs are ineffective or is it that we're going after the wrong target? Like We just don't really know. Um, and so I do think, even though biomarkers are, are very important, it's also important to keep in mind those those patient outcomes that we're that we're trying to
1: move in the end. Sure, all, all, all good points. I think we'll have to have you back to discuss sort of the origins and what you know, uh, more more discussion on biomarkers and also the role of misfolded toxic proteins uh, in in various neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. It, one last question for me then um, is. Um, how long before patients can start seeing benefits of of, of you know AI fueled studies or this work? Because as you mentioned, um, the clinical trial setting is one important application, but so is so is day to day care and follow up, and sort of giving the, the the patients and their families a sense of what what the future holds for them, so they can plan whether it's. New to to adopt new therapies, to use some of the lifestyle changes which we know can influence or slow progression of disease. Um, So, where is it at for the average patient? Uh, What what help and what benefits are we starting to see, if any? Mm -hmm. Well,
2: in our case, we we are now uh, working with companies that are that are running clinical trials and providing sort of these digital twins uh, in some 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 real trials that are actually in a pivotal trial now. Actually, even. Um, so you know there is to a degree the possibility that our approach will provide benefit to, to patients soon. Um, although of course we don't have any uh, you know real bearing on whether or not the particular drug or particular device that's being tested is is effective. We don't make the device; we just help try to run the trials in a more efficient in a more efficient way. Um, uh, I think that when you talk about the use of machine learning for these other contexts. They're really technologically feasible today. Um, these are things are done in, in other disease areas as well. And I think the real question there is is more of a business related question, uh, more of an implementation question and saying, you know, how can you uh economically come up with a way in which you can develop these types of sort of machine learning driven services uh and really get them used uh in a way that's beneficial to patients. Um, It's not something that that we focus on at at Unlearn, uh, but there are a number of companies who have done this in diabetes uh, and other areas. And I I imagine that similar types of approaches uh, could be applied to to Alzheimer's disease, particularly, I think, if you were to focus on on apps or or other kinds of services that are used by the caregivers, um, as opposed to, I would imagine that, you know, it it would be a little bit difficult uh, to get uh, an app that's going to be used directly by the patient uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, but I think focusing in, on, on apps that, that really are meant to be beneficial and used by the caregivers would be a, a, a good uh, approach.
0: Charles, what you're doing is really incredible. And you know, for our listeners who may not know drug development in detail, this is something that the drug development industry has been clamoring for for quite a while and, and you're doing it. It's really, it's been the holy grail of what, of what they've wanted. So maybe we could just start to wind down our discussion with you with a view from you on maybe what achievement that you've had that you've been most proud of at Unlearn and then what's ahead for the company.
2: I think that there are many achievements that I could uh, try to choose from. Uh, you know, I think when you're you're building uh, a startup company, right? Like we're a startup technology company, and that involves you know starting from zero, uh, you know, and then uh, trying to create new technologies. Uh, you know, publish uh, you know scientific papers. We've had uh, also a number of meetings uh, with FDA. Um, uh, which you know as again, as a small startup company is that those meetings are not necessarily very easy to get. Uh, they require a lot of uh, uh, perseverance uh, and patience. But you know I was having so I was having a conversation with one of our, our scientific advisors uh, the other day and I think that this is the thing that that I'm most proud of is you know he was mentioning that he was going through our website and looking at you know the growth that we've had in terms of you know uh, hiring people and, and bringing on lots of new scientists and that, you know, he was mentioning our team is just really incredible that we have built a team of extremely talented people. And I think that that's something that I'm, I'm really very proud of and that we are, you know, continuing to grow and continuing to build. But I think it's not just a team uh, that's, you know, good at machine learning, uh, that's good at software, uh, that's bringing on expertise in drug development and uh, regulatory science, and that that team will really have the ability. Uh, to push technology forward uh, in this domain in a way that that will, in the end, be very beneficial to patients. I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm really most proud of uh, about our company.
0: That is that is exceptional. Um, and pushing ahead, pushing ahead is critical. So, what what's in the future for you guys?
2: Well, right now we're really focused on uh, really. Uh, expanding the use of our approach to digital twins in Alzheimer's disease, we um, as I said, we are working now in, in a pivotal trial uh, for a medical device that's aimed at the treatment of Alzheimer's. Uh, we're very excited about that, and then uh, you know, expanding that use uh, into other areas, continuing conversations with uh, the FDA and, and with the European Medicines Agency. And then we we also have a paper now, uh, which is under review, which is a similar kind of approach uh, to digital twin uh, for multiple sclerosis. And that will be uh, a second product that we will start uh, and plan to launch sometime next year so that we can really start to expand the use of of these types of approaches, not just uh, to within neurological disease, which is our current focus, but really across different types of diseases to areas like like rare diseases, for example, uh, that was mentioned earlier, where there's really a need for new approaches to creating Uh, more efficient and and better clinical trials.
0: Awesome. Well, it sounds fantastic and we wish you the best of luck and we hope you'll come back and join us again on another podcast episode and keep us updated on what you're doing. Of course, I'd be happy to.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Look forward to having you back again, Charles. There's some exciting times and uh, a, a lot of future work in neurodegenerative disease. So thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you.